Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much as always for being here. We are, of course, in the middle of an interlude, but I have to say on a scale of one to ten, where one is the lowest and ten is the most interlullish of interlulls, I reckon this is somewhere about, I don't know, a four or a five. It hasn't felt too bad. I thought it was going to be worse, but there's been bits and pieces going on. Of course, there's the Arsene Wenger movie out. We're going to talk to Philippe Auclair about that and Arsene Wenger a bit later on. There's been some stuff from Mikel Arteta about Arsene Wenger. What else has been happening? Oh, Emil Smith-Rowe has been called up to the England squad for the first time, having been left out. Some withdrawals due to injury and illness have opened up a place for him, so he could win his first England cap uh, during this international break, which is... I think um, well-deserved, given how well he has played and how important he's become to Arsenal during, well, not just the last 12 months, but in particular this season and over the last month or so, his contributions have really made uh, a big difference uh, to where we are in the table right now. So that's been great. We found out as well that he's made some lifestyle changes. He doesn't eat as much chocolate. He's cut down on the takeaways and the the Nando's. Gotta say, if somebody said to me tomorrow, you can never eat another Nando's again, I'd go, oh no, you mean I won't be able to have my second ever Nando's after my first one, which was like, never eating this again, because it's just not that good. I know there's people out there right now who love their Nando's. I know there are. I'm just hoping that they're not like Beyonce fans or Taylor Swift fans who'll turn on me because I dared to not like mediocre chicken as much as they do look the story here is not nando's the story is emile smith rowe and let's hope he has a very successful international break and comes back to us ready to pick up where he left off which of course will mean that he scores i don't know two three what i'm at four is four goals at anfield too much to ask look if a tiny little russian who ate mr kipling for breakfast can do it then I have full faith in Emil Smith-Rowe uh, to, to match that achievement um, when we play at Liverpool next weekend. No pressure, though. 
no pressure. Okay, look, I said a bit later on, we're going to be talking to Filippo Claire. We will be. I'll also give you the winners of the competition from last week uh, in which you can win a copy of the Scouted Football Handbook. We talked to Phil Costa about that. I'll give you the winners of that in a little while as well. Now, though, to talk a bit about Premier League, to talk a bit about uh, some of the stuff that's been going on around players, social media, and more. Delighted to welcome back to the show a man we haven't spoken to for some time. He is the chief football writer for the iPaper. It is Daniel Story. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Andrew. You okay? I'm okay. Thank you very much. Uh, I thought we might have some general Premier League chat, but I thought there was an interesting story during the week, uh, maybe over the weekend. I'm sure people have seen it. The Manchester United CEO of media was on a podcast and he spoke about how uh, at Manchester United, they look at what's going on with players and the stories, or as he said, the narratives, um, and how they try and support the various narratives that certain players want to tell. And also, using the word narrative, Again, countering specific narratives, which which are fed back to them when they take all the data, uh, you know, and they do the graphs and all that kind of stuff when it comes to, um, you know, what people are saying about footballers, what people are saying about football clubs. And I guess we all know to some extent, like... A lot of Premier League footballers are footballers, but they're also very brand conscious. They've got teams of people, PR people, social media managers, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, I read it and I thought, well, this is a load of a wank, really. Um, But also, it feels like an inevitability that this kind of thing will become more and more prevalent in football. Yeah, I mean, it intrinsically feels just about as far away from... uh, Know, proper football in inverted commas as as you can get. Mm. Uh, there are a number of ways in which uh, football in 2021 makes you feel like that. But this was a very, well, it was very explicitly detailed, and I presume with with Manchester United say so that he 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 detailed exactly the the processes and the uh, strategies that that go behind these things. And I, look, it's one of those things that I think we probably all, as, as you kind of mentioned, we all probably knew it went on, but it's. It's easier not to kind of look behind the curtain and see how the sausages are made because uh, it does. It does. Well, on a personal view, it raises a, a huge amount of cynicism and a kind of sort of depressing inevitability about the whole process. Um, look, I, I understand that that some footballers won't want to tweet out themselves, um, partly because you know they want to keep that kind of thing separate from from themselves partly mm. because some of them won't feel like they 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 express themselves properly and they don't want to kind of get caught out by this kind of gotcha culture maybe mm-hmm. um but yeah it, to, to my mind it does create a, a kind of inauthentic voice it does it does dilute the message they're trying to send unfortunately um and one of their explanations for that might be well every time we tweet anything we get this barrage of abuse anyway so why <laughs> on earth would we want to <laughs> Well, I mean, there there is that. Um, and I think we saw some funny stuff as well with the Bruno Fernandez account tweeting out a good vibes tweet <laughs> uh, with pictures of Mohamed Elneny, Gabriel Martinelli and Emil Smith-Rowe. Bit of a whoops there on behalf of the, the social media managers. I mean, I think there is that as well. Like, um, you know, if you're a young player, maybe being on social media isn't the the best thing for you. I thought it was quite interesting. Martin Odegaard uh, has uh, deleted his Twitter account uh, saying, 
it's a load of crap. You need to be careful what you expose yourself to. I don't need to sit there and see all that. A lot of anonymity and strange things, which I guess is uh, quite diplomatic. It could be bad and scary if your head is not in the right place. But the prevalence of social media and these platforms and their importance to um, clubs as marketing tools mean that, you know, this isn't a thing that is going to go away. You can spot when a player account is authentic usually. Um, you can see the ones that, that aren't. But, I mean, is there a good way of doing this for for football clubs? Is there an, a non-cynical way of engaging? Even that word itself, engagement, sounds yeah. so contrived, doesn't it? It does. I mean, from a footballer point of view, I can't quite understand the the want to do it or even really the need to do it i guess i guess for you know maybe for for senior pros there is one eye looking on the rest of their career and if they you know they seem to offer some insight that could help in terms of maybe post career jobs but other than that i can't quite see why you'd bother um depressingly that abuse those strange things to which Erdegaard refers to are an inevitability now there's no getting away from them and i don't think unless there's a huge shift in, in the governance of social media, then I don't think there's a, you know, that that's a Pandora's box that's now opened. I don't think that's going to go away. So I can't see quite what they have out to gain out of it. I, I, the honest answer is I don't know if clubs put pressure on players. I suspect it comes more from their own management to, to be seen as having a, a personality mm. uh, and therefore being able to get across maybe tenets of that personality that they want people to understand but I, I, I don't I, I mean I'm not a pure pure justice supporter you know I am a, a writer I accept that but as a fan if I was a Manchester United fan I don't think I would gain anything out of for example Harry Maguire telling me that he was disappointed in a result or, or even worse than that someone writing on Harry Maguire's behalf yeah. that he's disappointed about a result and he's going to go again yeah. you know it, it these tweets are almost exclusively written in fairly banal media spiel cliches, which I don't really think offers any insight at all other than, um, yeah, that's exactly what we thought you'd say. Uh, if a player has something, you know, I think social media can be used in a really good way if it's, mm. if it's done in a kind of humorous, if it really gets across the player's personality. Someone like Mikel Antonio is really good at that. Um, and you can tell it's him and you can tell that that's his personality coming across. I don't feel like I'm getting anything of, of e.g. Harry Maguire's personality in those tweets. No, and look, I, I think we can look at it as maybe slightly older in the tooth gentlemen um, to, varying, <laughs> to varying degrees and wonder what is the benefit for a footballer to be on social media. But they're also young men and pretty much everybody has social media. Their teammates have it, other teammates, international teammates, uh, all of that kind of stuff where you can see actually some good interactions between players and, and everything else. But at the same time, it does leave you open to, look, we've seen that we don't need to go over this ground because I don't really um, have the solution for it. Um, you know, talk of, banning anonymous accounts is all well and good but when there's people quite happy to put their name to their racist tirades and screeds on twitter in response to a young footballer who missed a penalty in a game of football you know no anonymity is going to change that but it does leave them open to that kind of thing and i wonder 
if more and more this is going to have to become, if you like, part of the curriculum at, at football clubs at academy level as to, I mean, I think it probably should be um, on the curriculum in general in the world, you know, for, for kids to understand how social media operates and the permanency of things that you do online, et cetera, et cetera. But for young players, you know, to understand that, that you know, you could be the target of nasty people just because, A, they don't like your club, they don't like what you did for the national team, they don't like the colour of your skin, whatever it might be, there's always going to be somebody who could target you. Yeah, and, and the, 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 the magic button with social media that, that didn't exist beforehand is that it does feel to the person sending those messages as a, a very personal connection. Mm. So that 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 creates the argument for having a, a PR team to do it for you in that it allows you to send a message which you know, cynically, I think is probably diluted because it isn't them, but it does allow them to, you know, avoid submerging themselves in that dross that follows it. Um, you know, big clubs are already uh, training players on social media, but it, it still strikes me as strange because um, most things that, that elite footballers do kind of on the pitch and off are all done in a kind of risk reward, you know, weighing up formula. And I, I don't see... That, the, that these social media, you know, having a social media account, being vocal in a, in a fairly banal way, I don't think that that provides enough of a, a reward to, to mitigate the risk, quite frankly. Do, do you worry as well maybe that some of the people who are, um, you know, tasked with, with running these things, like having a CEO of, of media, it goes too far away from the idea of what a football club should be. And I heard Ken Early talk about this quite well on the Second Captain's podcast on Monday. Sort of this idea, as he said, that Manchester United kind of want to be like Netflix. They want to be a platform through which people can view the latest and greatest, you know, installment of the Cristiano Ronaldo saga or Bruno Fernandes or whatever it might be. Um, but, but, it comes at the expense of what a football club should be about, which is ultimately winning football matches and getting results and, and all that kind of stuff where this disconnection that people might already feel uh, because they're, they feel like customers or clients rather than members or supporters, if you like, it just pushes us further and further down that road. It does. And it, it actually, you know, on a, on a, you know, a very basic level, it, it goes against the very theme of what social media was intended to be, which was, it was intended to be a, a means, a medium of connecting um, famous people and fans of those famous people. And if you're, if the famous person isn't sending the tweet, then, and, and this is done and, and the Manchester United guy was very explicit that this is why it's done. It's done as a, as a marketing strategy, then it, it does the opposite to my mind. It actually drives a further wedge between fans and those players because the only medium on which they felt they had some connection and, and look, I understand that the abuse on that, on that medium means that it's become a very toxic place, but it, it goes against that message because it says this person is so far away from you that even on a social media platform, they aren't going to be the ones reaching out. How do you view things like the rise in in partnerships with things like cryptocurrencies? Um, we've um, spoken on this podcast before about socios and Arsenal were one of the clubs involved in that. And, and again, it is 
um, marketed as this thing which gives fans um, the ability to have engagement with their football club, um, which, of course, you know, really isn't uh, true in the sense that you, nothing meaningful comes from it, but you have to pay good money to get involved with something as trivial as what, what song is going to be played or what color the corner flags are and things like that. And new technologies, new ways through which fans can be monetized. Uh, and I realize football clubs, particularly after what's happened in the last couple of years, are in difficult positions financially and, and everything else. But the constant search for new ways to exploit fans and to exploit loyalty and love for clubs and players and all that kind of stuff, it seems to be a bit never-ending at this point. Anytime there's anything new, well, that's the thing we can do to to squeeze a bit more out of the fans. Yeah, I mean, 100% agree. It's, uh, you know, fans are our customers. That That's an unfortunate nature of it, but they're also unique customers in that, you know, if your favourite brand of washing powder either got, you know, failed to perform, failed to clean your clothes or became double as expensive or weaponized your customer loyalty, then you would take a different stance. You'd buy another washing powder. Mm. Football fans don't have that opportunity. That that makes them unique as a, as a customer. And it also creates a, a responsibility on the part of the company, aka the football club, um, a, a, a corporate social responsibility not to try and exploit that loyalty. And the reality is, and it's a very sad reality, and it's not just the elite clubs, is that, that you know that those football fans are ripe for exploitation and have been exploited to the max. And and as you say, not just exploited in very basic terms of of rising ticket prices and rising rising broadcasting, um, you know, deals, but also clubs constantly seeking for a new way to do that. And while that is incredibly damaging and incredibly dispiriting, it also go ha- goes hand in hand with these clubs at the same time proposing and, and exclaiming that, that they are a voice of the fans, that they are there for supporters, that supporters matter. You know, you get the sugary cliches of, you know, football is nothing without fans and mm. we couldn't do without you. And managers say, you know, 12th man and all that kind of semi-nonsense. But the bottom line is that is only best represented in how you treat those supporters and um, how those supporters are increasingly treated is as, as cash cows, basically. And cash cows in which their loyalty is used as a weapon against you because the insinuation, deliberately or otherwise, is you are not a proper fan unless you do this. You know, you are an Arsenal fan, so you must want to be able to choose the colour of the corner flags. And if you don't care, then you're not a proper fan. And we will weaponize other fans against you to make you feel like you're not a proper <laughs> fan, which is incredibly toxic. And it's 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 happening across the board. It's happening pretty much at every Premier League club. And it's really, really sad. No, I agree. And I think, you know, there is obviously people will be screaming at this going, well, you know, there's personal choice and you can do what you want. You don't have to get involved in these things, but they do prey on those very emotive things like the sense of of fan, like the sense of connection. And I think particularly, um, you know, for fans who might be distant from the clubs who want to find every way possible that they can be... um, 
as close to the club or get as close uh, in inverted commas an authentic fan experience as, as possible so yeah we'll we'll have to see how all this um, plays out and continues to play out across the Premier League speaking of which I want to talk to you about this um, Premier League season so far how have you how have you enjoyed it I mean we're about what one third a little over one third of the way through um, how have you found this Premier League season thus far I think it's a. It's got the makings of a of an excellent season. It's got the makings of a. It feels like a kind of fresh spring of a Premier League season after the, you know, the long, fairly hard, fairly bleak winter of of nineteen twenty and twenty twenty one. Not necessarily that the football was bad and that what happened didn't count, but that um, we were all getting through a lot of other shit in our lives, mm. and therefore football became this very useful and very valuable. Um, distraction. Uh, I think this season now it feels as if football is able to stand on its own two feet, not just as a distraction from everything else that's going on, although it, it remains to be that, um, but as a, a fascinating Premier League season in its own right. Um, it, I came into this season thinking that there would be four clubs that were way ahead of the rest. And after a third of the season, West Ham are a joint second or you know, level on points with second in the league, which gives me you know i'm not a west ham supporter but it, it gives me a general sense of of slightly disbelieving comfort that maybe you know maybe money and wage bills and and price of squad and and everything else and state ownership doesn't doesn't mean everything that there is still a kind of a loophole where you know in inverted commas the magic of sport rushes in and and makes hay so yeah i've i've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it i have to say yeah i was going to ask you sort of what what you found the best thing about this season so far and i was going to maybe suggest that the fact that west ham are in third place in the premier league and going very well i mean even arsenal in fifth place is uh, remarkable <laughs> to me um you know we, we have this idea that the clubs who have the money uh, chelsea and manchester city are going to be miles ahead and that's not the case at this moment in time like it could happen because those two clubs and maybe Liverpool as well are capable of going on the kind of runs which really open up some distance on on the the chasing pack, if you like. But the idea, I think, you know, particularly with with what's happened with Newcastle and what people see as the inevitability of what Newcastle will become, um, the idea that that the Premier League might actually be genuinely competitive is a heartening one in a way, isn't it? Because it would be just thoroughly depressing. I know it's been the case in the past where there's no competition for the title or there's such a big gap between one or two or three teams and, and all the rest. And I, I do feel like there has been some measure of equalization over the last couple of years in that sense. Uh, I don't know that I'd put any money on anyone other than the obvious choices for the title, but we've seen Leicester pretty much stay in the top four two seasons in a row right until the end until um, you know it went wrong for them and they should have been playing Champions League football. West Ham are in the Champions League places right now. It, it looks like a pretty stern uh, and pretty interesting competition for the top four. And I don't know that I really thought that might, that was going to be possible. No, and it's done on on relatively simple football principles, which at West Ham is to to maximise the use of, of set pieces and hard work, and at Arsenal is to bring through a, a crop of young players that can add a, 
a freshness to a team that was that was lacking and uh, you know the cliche and I, I'm probably guilty of saying it as well in the past is you know Arsenal lead leaders and yes fine that there's there was a semblance of a point there but actually also what teams always need is a fresh start and yeah. a fresh mood and a sense that everyone's pulling in the right direction within the same team and Generally, young players are pretty good for that. You know, their pro- progress is never in a in a straight line. It's never linear, but and there will be setbacks along the way. But at, at Arsenal, in particular, it feels as if there is a, a blueprint and there is some sustainable steps towards progress. That means every defeat doesn't have to mean the cries of crisis, and every every victory doesn't have to mean a comeback. It can actually be part of something bigger of moving forward. And and the other thing I'd say in terms of enjoying the Premier League is. Manchester United's decline under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to me is is it, I'm not a Manchester United fan, but it, it's incredibly frustrating to me that they they haven't tried to fix the issue. But it's also reasonably heartening in that a team can buy Cristiano Ronaldo, Rafael Varane, and Jaden Sancho and have some of the most brilliant individuals in the in the world. But unless you have a coach that is capable of knitting things together in a system. It, it won't guarantee you anything, which for someone that that has kind of felt for a long time, like one of football's great tenets. You know, Chelsea spent a lot of money, but they had a good coach at the time. Man City spent a lot of money, but they have a good coach. It's it's heartening to me that the success of the manager is so is still so very obviously correlated to the success of the team. It isn't just about players. How much do you think the the emotional connection between Manchester United, the club, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, the ex-player, what he did there, has saved him to an extent. Because I do feel like if if it were anyone else, and I think we saw something similar with Mourinho. I mean, there was obviously more going on with Mourinho because there there always is something <laughs> going on with Mourinho. But, you know, the, the kind of run of uh, the form that they've been on, some of the games that they've just about saved that maybe they should have dropped points in or should have been defeated in, um, you know, they've they've shown faith in him. And look, that can be rewarded. Um, it's just at various other football clubs, uh, and we saw it recently with Aston Villa, they lose five in a row and they get rid of Dean Smith. Mikel Arteta will be thankful that Arsenal weren't as um, trigger-happy uh, based on what happened last season when Arsenal, I think, went... Was it seven games without winning and they lost five of those? You know, they didn't pull the trigger on him, maybe because there was a connection, maybe because he was newer. But but with Solskjaer, they seem to have just kind of nailed their colors to that particular mass. They're willing to give him the time, even at the expense of, of better candidates being available with Antonio Conte going, hi, guys. Hello, I'm here. Yeah. You know, to the point where he went, well, fuck it, I'll just go manage Spurs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, there's two. There's two kind of separate points there. The first, I think that there's this. Um, there is this kind of obvious wave of nostalgia that they want it to work, and I think that speaks to the fact that um, you, an acceptance that Solskjaer isn't working there is almost an acceptance of Man- acceptance of a kind of lack of a unique. Manchester Unitedness that they thought they had that would kind of trump everything else, that it would speak louder than Chelsea's spending and it would speak louder than Guardiola's coaching because there was something inherent that that presumably Alex Ferguson instilled in the club that lingered on mm. and therefore could speak louder than even than logic itself. And I think accepting that that hasn't worked is probably 
put it this way, I don't think they will replace Solskjaer with another club legend manager, and I'm not sure they'd replace his replacement with one either. So I think there's an acceptance that doing that would to be to end uh, a kind of mini era, even if that era hasn't particularly even been successful. But the the, the great you know the great irony of all this is that United are pursuing that. Um, kind of vision of nostalgia on the pitch or, or on the sideline and yet behind the scenes are attempting to be the most modern of football clubs with their you know almost comical sponsorship deals and marketing deals and their you know and even going back to what we said about about the guy on the podcast talking about their marketing strategies with players tweeting and on social media that the two to my mind completely strike against each other that they're, you're pursuing the individually best players in the world and yet you seem to think that this kind of nod to nostalgia on the touchline is suddenly going to make everything right is, is I think, nonsensical. I mean, I, I, I think that Solskjaer will leave at the end of the season, if not before, and it, it might well be the end of the season so they can make a, a more long-term appointment and maybe that's fair enough. But in the meantime, they are risking not being in the Champions League next season. And that's not something that a club of Manchester United size. And, you know, they are very rich. They have huge revenues. They are historically successful. They have been successful in the recent past. But there are no VIP passes to the Champions League. There are no VIP passes, VIP passes to the title race. You get what you put in. And at the moment, United are, are getting exactly what they deserve. Well, yeah. And when you consider the amount that they spend and the calibre of the players that they brought in, you know, it, it does speak perhaps to, um, like, it's early days with what's happening at Arsenal right now, but but there has been a, what appears to me and to many Arsenal fans to have been a, a uh, coherent recruitment strategy and that appears to be paying dividends whereas if you buy Cristiano Ronaldo simply because Manchester City were going to buy him not because you necessarily wanted him yourself that I think um yeah you 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 reap what you sow to an extent um what's been the worst thing about the Premier League this season I mean the the Newcastle takeover is is kind of dispiriting to me maybe in a slightly different sense than with other people in that it's not the takeover itself it's not the reaction to the takeover from fans it's the way that fans are placed in this moral quandary that some choose to engage with and some choose to deliberately avoid and and you know have their reasons for doing so i suppose um that it, it, it places football supporters who from everything we've just spoke about are, are powerless and are exploited it then puts them in this position where they are expected to not unreasonably um to have to make this moral stance on on what their club or who their club is owned by that is that is incredibly you know it's 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 awful it really is you know a club a newcastle is a club that i have a, a family connection through to through grandfathers and mum's side of my family and I, i'm glad i'm not a newcastle fan because i would hate to have to think yes, how, how can I weigh up being glad that one owner has left and being worried about one owner coming in and yet the whole game itself has, has hardwired me to clamour success and to clamour new signings and yet at the same time when we get one of those takeovers that, that the game and governing bodies allow to happen, I'm then expected to say, well, this is enough is enough, I'm never going to St James's Park mm. again. There are no no easy answers. There are There, there is very easy advice but there are no easy answers. And it's, it, I just think the game, you know, the game in general should not have put 
Newcastle United fans in that position. And and don't get me wrong, the behaviour of some of them since has been pretty awful and pretty distasteful. But in the main, I think, yeah, I think they've been, been put into a position where is quite frankly scandalous that they were allowed to be in. Well, yeah, look, it's a, it's an issue of governance um, and how the game is being governed and who the game allows to own football clubs. And that's been a that's been an issue for a long time. And it, it's another way in which fans are are kind of exploited is the wrong word, but that sense of loyalty to your club is you know, you can't just turn that off just because you don't like the owner or maybe you do like the owner or maybe you like the idea of the owner but you don't like the idea of where his money comes from it is a complicated situation um and there has been a lot of sort of pearl clutching and and everything else from certain aspects of it but uh yeah i I have to agree i think that has been one of the more um difficult parts of this premier league season right look just very finally as somebody who used to do a lot of um stuff on football 365 the winners and losers in which arsenal in recent <laughs> years um, I picked a bad era, <laughs> we often appeared in the losers category um how have you viewed what's happened this season particularly in light of of how it all started and and where we are now i i, I mean i went to the Leicester away game and I walked to that stadium you know it it isn't just me saying this because I I wrote this in the piece afterwards but I went to the stadium and I thought do you know what this is the first time I've come to watch an Arsenal game and I thought whatever happens today I think genuinely is a line in the sand because if they collapse again here and it feels like it's another rolling tide of up and down and and that will still happen I'm sure Mm. and they were absolutely magnificent you know the away fans were, were brilliant You've got the status quo, Sacker and Smith row <laughs> song, which feels like an embodiment, like a soundtrack of the club at the moment in terms of these young, exciting, attacking players that are being trusted. They're being started and they're being trusted to carry the club forward and carry the ball forward. And yes, Aaron Ramsdale made some fantastic saves. Of course he did. And, and he has been a revelation in terms of his personality. But it just felt like a club that finally had control of itself. I've watched Arsenal win games and win games handsomely in the past. But it it always kind of felt that results were something that happened to Arsenal more than Arsenal were making them happen. Against Leicester, I got the sense that Arsenal were really making that happen. They decided to start quickly. They then decided to sit back and they decided to soak up pressure. And they did both brilliantly. And... It really, you know, I'm a, a Premier League neutral in that I do not support the Premier League club, and that gives me a really nice position in which I can mm. genuinely take things almost on face value and kind of take delight in a club doing well, even if I have no affiliation. And Arsenal are a club that I enjoy watching at the moment, and it looks like it's a club for the first time in quite a while where pretty much every single player has enjoyed being there. You've got, you know, you've got senior players up front who are hounding in possession and trying to win the ball back. You've got Saka and Smith Rowe who are both absolute gems Mm. at doing what they do and not just it's kind of bigger than itself because what they're doing is kind of symbolic of this new movement of of young players you've got i think it's nine the top youngest nine starting 11s in the premier league this season are picked by Mikel arteta and it, it seems too simplistic to say okay that's what was going wrong all along but when you know when a year ago we were sat here talking about william and you know, the, the implications of a, a super agent led move and a, a 32 year old on big money not playing. We have come a long way since then. And, and Arsenal fans should should not necessarily 
be worried about the future now. And that's a really joyous thing to be able to say. Yeah, look, uh, I think we will be worried about the future. It'll take a bit more than this. (laughs) I think there's a natural element of worry, but I think you're right. You know, the the difference now between, as you say, you know, the the old end of career guys who are kicking around looking for a comfortable place to play out like William, like David Luiz, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Some of the other characters who were let go in January who were contributing nothing to this group of young players, um, you know, a couple of uh, young England stars, Emil Smith-Rowe called up to the national team for the first time this week, and deservedly so, Saka part of the squad as well. Um, yeah, it, it it feels just markedly different. It feels, it's like sort of, I don't know, it's like walking out of your house in the morning and everything's all over the place and coming back and discovering that magic elves have tidied everything up <laughs> and painted all the rooms, you know? It's, it, the, the best way I can describe it is that if Arsenal lose a home game now, I can imagine that dressing room saying, right, you know what? That was a bad performance, but we will move on from this. This will not kind of taint us and drag us down as it has done in the past. This will not kind of submerge us in this Arsenal ennui, which had happened in the past and one defeat always brought two or three or four. I think that has changed. You know, the the, the opening run of games this season was was worrying, but only because Arsenal were comfortably uh, uh, I mean Brentford was Brentford but against Manchester City and Chelsea it was that Arsenal were worse than elite teams and the reality is that that is Arsenal's lot at the moment they you know they have no shortcut to to bridging that gap and you might say it's going to be an impossible gap to bridge given the resources but that doesn't have to mean crisis anymore that can mean taking steps to try and bridge that gap through sensible processes that keep fans on board and the Arsenal fans I speak to now seem kind of almost disbelief in their confidence, which, as you well know, will undoubtedly come (laughs) crashing down in three months' time. Maybe, maybe. I'll tell you what it is, though, Daniel. Football feels kind of like fun again, and it hasn't for a while, for all kinds of reasons, not just because of what's gone on on the pitch. It's just been quite fun, and it's been nice to be uh, reminded of that. So, look, um, we better leave it there. Thank you very much, as always, for your time, and hopefully we can talk again soon. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much to Daniel Story. You can find him on Twitter at DanielStory85, at DanielStory85. And of course, he's the chief football writer for the iPaper. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Now, I told you I would give you the winners of the uh, competition from last week's show to win a copy of the Scouted Football Handbook, which I will do momentarily. Just to remind you that Arsblog has been nominated for Best Fan Media at the 2021 Football Supporters Association Awards. We would very, very much like your vote if you could take 10 seconds or 20 seconds, whatever it takes to just click on a link and give us your vote. We will be really, really appreciative of that. You will find a link to the voting form in the show notes. So have a look now while you're listening. If you can, if you're walking or sitting, not if you're driving, please wait till you've pulled over or something like that. Uh, You'll find a link. Have a click. There are some other Arsenal people in there you can vote for too, uh, which will be great. Keep it red and white. But if you could vote for Arsblog as best fan media as we try and defend our That would be fantastic. And thank you very much in advance for that. Uh, We do have a new edition of the Arsenal Women Arscast available right now. Tim and Alex are talking to Sky Sports about the deal that they did and the coverage of the Women's Super League. It's a really, really good episode. So make sure you tune in for that. And over on Patreon, we have an episode of Statements, the podcast in which I put statements, funnily enough, to a guest that they have to either strongly agree Uh, agree, disagree, or strongly disagree with. My guest for that one is Clive Palmer, who you'll know from the Arsenal Vision podcast as well. So you can find that at patreon.com forward slash arseblog. Right. The winners of the Scouted Football Competition, I asked you to go to their website and tell me what was the text in white in a red box. The text was new magazine. The winners were selected by the random number generator. And the three winners are Imran Bellim. I think that's how you pronounce it. Giovanni McLeish and Connor O'Brien. So well done to you guys. I'll be in touch. I'll drop you an email and we will get those prizes sent out to you ASAP. Okay, joining me now on the Arsecast to talk about the Arsene Wenger film and some of the uh, bits and pieces that have emerged from that. It's Philippe Claire. Hello, Philippe. Good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning to you as well. So you've seen the film Arsene Wenger Mm -hmm. Invincible. It's a story we know as Arsenal (laughs) fans very well. We we lived it. We breathed it. We've written the books. We've read the books. We've watched the videos over and over again. and, And many of those memories and experiences, I think, are indelibly inked upon our memories and our psyches and everything else. So with all that in mind, how did you find the film as a viewing experience with all that, uh, you know, knowledge and experience? Uh, I'd say that, first of all, it was a very pleasant experience and uh, a surprisingly pleasant experience. Uh, As in, I was, I would, I was dreading, well, not dreading, Mm. I was worried that it would be a bit too bombastic, a little bit too hagiographic, um, a little bit too uh, uh, basically excessive. And it's the very opposite of that. It's actually very balanced, very nuanced, uh, quite subtle. Uh, and of course, uh, when it comes to a, a subject like this one, uh, this, there's not going to be a big reveal at the end of it. I think we all know how the film ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously, it's how we go there, which is as they sit today, the journey. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, Sorry. Are, <laughs> I'm going to okay. wash my, my mouth with soap. There are, uh, there are elements of that journey, which I think are, are, are slightly surprising in a way, like the bit where, uh, and I mentioned this in the interview I did last week with, with Gabriel Clark, where um, they put in the, the semi-final at Old Trafford, which 
I genuinely Best have not breakers. looked at since mm. it happened. Uh, I'm still very much in the too soon category for that. But, you know, being reminded of some of the, um, I guess, failings is maybe the right word, but some of the things that didn't quite go uh, as well was was an interesting sidebar to the ultimate achievement of going through a season uh, unbeaten. Yeah, I mean, and, and to be honest, yes, I remember you know, there, there, there's a moment or there are moments at which you have got the... Uh, uh, the fixtures and the score lines, uh, which are scrolling on the screen. And I was thinking uh, every time, you know, I was a bit like a, somebody to whom you put um, a Rorschach test card yeah. uh, because I can remember every single one of those games. I can't remember last week's game, but I can remember those games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, oh, yes, the nil-nil against Fulham. Oh, yes, the one all against Portsmouth, which, of course, by the way, is not in the film, which is Bobby Pires's penalty. Uh, which is magnificent, of course, as we all know. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, you think, well, yes. I mean, the, 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 and the fact that they have, that Gabriel and Christian Jean-Pierre have, uh, have actually spent quite a bit of time about that FA Cup game, I think it's actually one of the strengths of the film. And, and, and the strengths actually come perhaps from unexpected quarters, uh, it, it's, it's a well-known story. It's a story we all know, but what matters even if you know the landscape that we are exploring, what matters is the map that is used to explore it, but also uh, the torchlight or the lights which are put focusing on, on what you're discovering. And, um, and that, that it's, I think the tone of it is, is, is terrific. And also because more than the story of the invincible year, which has been told time and time again, I think it is a genuinely... Uh, quite, I mean, I wouldn't say profound, because it's an adjective I could never use for anything related to Arsene. But it's certainly an in-depth portrait of Arsene Wenger, the like of which I think I haven't seen before, certainly not on the screen. Yeah, I mean... And, uh, yeah, I, and I think that, that, you know, they spend a lot of time in Alsace, which I think is fantastic, by the way. They, the scenes there are, are really, really good. And I, I hats off to them, because they must have had something like three days with Wenger in the hall for the whole shoot. And didn't they use that brilliantly? Yeah. Uh, they went to all the places. You do get the feel, you do get the feeling of loneliness that goes with the manager management role, but also with the personality of Wenger, you do get the element of fear, the obsession, the humor. You get a lot of sides of his character, which are completely absent from many books, which have been devoted to him, for example, including his own. Mm. Uh, and uh, at the same time, revisiting this, this and other seasons. I mean, there have been some interesting choices made. I mean, we could talk about this for for ages because I, I was, it, for me, the, the only thing that perhaps um, I would have liked to see more of, but that would have made it uh, a three-hour documentary, yeah. is the fact that the fall from uh, two thousand and four. And basically the Old Trafford game, the Pizzagate game, to the exit was not as uh, was certainly not sudden. There were loads of ups as well as loads of downs. And mm. you know the 2006 Champions League campaign was definitely an up for all of us. The 2007-2008 season could have been one of our greatest ever in the history of the club, and wasn't because mm. Arsenal were just basically kicked from pitch to pitch and had everything against them, as well as a very young squad and all these sort of things. So they decided, 
And it's, it's an artistic choice, which is perfectly, it's artistic license, perfectly all right, to go straight almost from 2004 to 2017 without mm. going as well through the, um, devoting some time to the protest, but no time at all for the successes in the FA Cup finals, for example. Yeah. Which is, you know, from a fan's point of view. But again, it's artistic license. And what you end up with is a very well-rounded, uh, very nuanced uh, portrait of, well, Arsenal's greatest ever manager with, with Chapman. So sure. that's pretty damn good, actually, in my book. No, I and think- it's, also, it's beautifully shot, and the music is good. Mm-hmm. It's not Hans Zimmer. It's nice, subtle music, not wistful <laughs> piano tinkling tinkling noodling noodling in the background <laughs> it's much better than that and there's a great sense of rhythm to the film which sure. is something that is missing in many documentaries but not this one so if i were to uh <laughs> to give it a note like you do for our players after every game you know and you can reveal mm-hmm. i would give it an 8.5 which is very high that is high that is yeah. high and I, i'm pretty sure that this is the only arsenal podcast in which uh shade has been thrown at hans zimmer while talking about <laughs> arsene wenger so i'm 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 always pleased to have you on so we get these wonderful moments um <laughs> look i think you're right you know you, it's such a big story such a long story to tell you know the where it started going wrong and and how it started going wrong and all of that i think it would have to be a a yes. series it's, of some kind but yeah it's know. a different i we could say it's almost a different mm. documentary and we should by the way uh, mention the fact that patrick vieira is absolutely magnificent in it i thought i thought so he was my favorite of the of the talking heads um that were in there because he's not somebody you hear a great deal from usually particularly when it comes to talking about Arsenal, you know, he's been mm. separate or separated, I think, from the club in a way. And I don't mean that to be critical or anything like that, but he, he's he's taken his own path, obviously, to go, you know, via Man City, the City Group, um, New York to France, back to London with, with Crystal Palace. But yeah, I, I found that quite pleasing, actually, the... Um, what, what's the phrase he, he uses? I think it's in the trailer. He said, when, when a manager believes in you, you'll go to war for him. Something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and clearly he did on many occasions. Absolutely. And uh, I think it's the uh, listening to him speak as well. Anyway, because we love Paddy so much. Mm. <laughs> but you do feel that inner strength when he talks. It's very imp- he's a very impressive and very charismatic man. Mm. And you think, oh, my goodness, yes, absolutely. And he's got this glint in his eye and this slight smile when he speaks. I think you're not going to mess around with this guy. Mm. But on the other hand, if you have good times with this man, they were going to be very, very good times indeed. Sure. Um, let's just talk a bit about the end of the, of the movie. Uh, and again, if people want to wait and see it before they listen to the rest of this. It's not that it contains spoilers necessarily, no. but there mm. are things that he says and things that we become aware of that we weren't maybe quite as aware of his his uncomfortable demeanor in the tunnel as Bob Wilson is um, encouraging the crowd to give him the greatest welcome they can on on May the sixth, twenty eighteen, before the game against Burnley, his final home game in charge, which was an amazing day. I was there. I remember it being a great day. We won four or five nil, I think, and and the reception 
for Arsene Wenger was was really warm and appreciative and and uh I think from the from the perspective of somebody in the crowd it felt it felt great for him it was obviously a very different experience he talks about how you're criticized one week and then the next day everybody's really nice to you because this event is taking place and he talks about I mean, the thing that really got to me was when he said, now there's no special reason for me to go there. All the yeah. rest is just emotional. And I found that you you said the word profound. I don't know that I would use that word either, but maybe poignant is a word that I would use, that, yes. that he sees no reason to go back to a club where he spent 22 years and dismisses everything else as emotional when the reason why he should be back and we should want him back and there should be a place for him is because of all the emotion that happened in those 22 years is quite sad to see that that's where his mindset is whether it's a self-protection i'm not quite sure but i found that quite affecting yes self-protection without a doubt um you have got i can't remember who said that but we don't lead a public life and a private life, we live, we lead three lives, a public life, a private life, and a secret life. Mm. And Arsene is somebody who is incredibly um, jealous of his secret life and of his private life, of both. Mm. And I think that anything which is an intrusion in that is something that bothers him tremendously. Like he'd be uncomfortable in the situation. He's extremely uncomfortable. And yeah. I actually spoke to him about that um, two, three months ago. Right. And we were having a really nice chat. And I wanted to talk to him about his time in Japan and, and so on. And it was great. And, um, but at one point, I could feel that he you know, he'd had enough. And I said, Arthur, you really don't like talking about yourself. And he said, basically, I hate it. Yes. And he hates being thrown in the limelight. That's partly because of where he comes from, which is not just Alsace, but I would say he comes from the 19th century. It's not because you were born in 1946 that you don't come from the 19th century. He comes from a part of France that was so rural and so backward in some way, which backward, by the way, is a is completely wrong word to choose. I know what you mean, though. Yeah, it, it took... Uh, it, it was a place that lived in a different time mm. from the rest of the country. And so... He, that maybe it's his background, maybe it's also the nature of the, the relationship, which was the a soured relationship which he had with the Arsenal hierarchy. I mean, could it be linked to the fact it's a Kronkers? Probably, because he felt that the Kronkers, by putting in all these people in charge of, you know, the various teams of analysts and data this and data that, that they put in place, the way they um, decided to manage the club is something which was chipping at uh, Arsene's power, whereas he, en he enjoyed a almost completely free hand when, when David Dean was around. Mm. And um, so you, you add this, you add that, and also you add the personal dimension of, um, <clears throat> of the man. And I've noticed that the emotional is the word that he uses a lot, but he uses it a lot to dismiss it. Mm. For example, I mean, he... And he sees that as something, he, he defines himself in the film, and I'm not really ruining anything because it's, I think it's in the first five minutes, as a romantic pragmatist, which is as good a definition of his approach to football as you, as well as a pragmatist romantic. Yeah. 
Um, but he talks about, um, you know, the, the need not to go emotional. Uh, and, and to take an example, which is perhaps not as uh, blessed as what we're referring to um, recently, uh, when talking to Rio Ferdinand about the Biennial World Cup, he said that the opposition to the plan was mostly emotional. Yeah. As if it was a dismissal, whereas perhaps, given we're talking about football, it's probably the most important of all reasons. Um, so that gives you a, an inkling as to where he is, I think. I don't think being Arsene Wenger is necessarily a very pleasant thing all of the time. I... Yeah, I sort of got that sense like I looked at it and thought I'm not sure I I I would like it like the obsession part of the obsession with football something that perhaps during his time as manager people said he is obsessed with football he goes home he sits down he watches three matches he stays up till three in the morning then he's out and he goes to training he's at the training and I'm thinking like there is a work-life balance thing that's probably healthy and one that is unhealthy and i mm -hmm. wonder you know do we maybe look at somebody who who is the way arson wenger is maybe sometimes and think wow that's really admirable when in fact it's probably not and i don't mean that to be necessarily critical he is who he is and that's the way he operated and exactly. you know to get to the very top of an elite sport or any elite pursuit you probably have to be dedicated at the cost of other things but the, i got a sense from the film not just about uh, he, he wasn't very specific about this when he talked about maybe his his personal life or his family life but he was a bit more wistful when he talked about some of his football life so i'm assuming it it would apply to that where he talks about i should have gone somewhere else i should have done things differently yeah. i maybe you know some recognition of the fact that the way he was wasn't necessarily the best way to be even if he couldn't say that in so many words mm. it's a very melancholy film isn't it yeah and yeah. um, I, I think as well, you, all of us would have heard him um, saying how much he regretted that his obsession made him a very selfish man and um, how it made him, I would say neglect, it's not quite the word, but and his family became really second to his obsession in his life. And it's something that he said for a very long time. And we've come to accept it as, yeah, he would say that. But when he says that in the film, you, it really hit me, actually. That, yeah, actually, that's what you did. You sacrificed your family life, but you sacrificed it not because you had to go down the pit to provide bread and put it on the table. You sacrificed it for selfish reasons. Mm. And I think he finds it very difficult to deliver with that. And when, he was, when he's talking about it in the film... The regret is not feigned at all. The regret is something it feels quite deeply. But that, that means, I mean, the, all we're saying right now, I think is the best possible advertisement for the documentary. Because if you can put all these things across, suggest them, which is also another great strength of it, which is things are not shouted in your face. They're suggested. Mm. You're treated as an intelligent spectator who is able to understand what is going on and who is sharing in a lot of what is going on. And um, yeah, and it's, uh, and, and it's, yeah, it confirms, I have to say, Andrew, a lot of what I've been thinking and writing about Arsene, and I'm writing about Arsene for all these years, is that mm. there is, he's one of the most misconceived 
people that I can think of. And, you know, because his um, monk-like life was not so monk-like monk -like either. We shouldn't think that he was, that's the only thing he was doing. Mm. The, but unlike Sir, Sir Alex Ferguson, who, by the way, is also excellent in the film, and um, we have to appreciate the fact that he agreed to appear in it. And um, Ferguson always knew to take the time off. He knew when to cut off. He knew when to delegate. He knew when to keep out of things. He knew when to get in back in them. And as a result, has had a life that I think most of us, despite the fact that we probably wouldn't want to be mm. Manchester United managers, <laughs> can look at and think, well, it's a life I wouldn't have minded living. Sure. Because there's a bit of everything in there. Yeah. I mean... Just, I mean, Arsenal, it's a bit, you know, apart from the fact that it's Arsenal, which of course changes rather a lot of things. Yeah. Um, it's not quite the same. No, um, just sort of finally, because I know you're pressed for time, but I do want to ask you about this. I mean, there is, sure. a, there is a, you know, probably a, a line between obsession and ego and self-belief and talent and ability and all of those things, which I think are evident within Arsene Wenger. And, and we have this situation right now where he has not been back at the club since 2018. And I think we can all understand to an extent why that might be. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that there are <clears throat> perhaps good reasons why you don't want to have a manager, <clears throat> excuse me, a manager like Arsene Wenger there looming over a new man, a club that's in rebuilding mode or, or all of those things. I mean, we can see reasons as to why that might be the case. But we're now heading up on three years, uh, four years since he's been back. Mikel Arteta spoke about this and was pictured with Arsene Wenger at, at the premiere. And he said, I'd like him to be more present at the club. I think the players will love him. They will benefit. They will be inspired to have him around. I think for the club, it would be a huge boost. It would be so beneficial for all parties to have him more present. And that is the first time anybody at Arsenal has really spoken about Arsene Wenger in those terms and spoken mm -hmm. about rebuilding a relationship which is clearly very damaged. And I think it's sad that it's damaged. I don't know whether Arsene feels... Um, you know, maybe some of the people at executive level who he he didn't appreciate are gone now, but maybe some of them are still there. The owners, of course, are, are still there as well. Yeah. I don't know if his problem is necessarily with them. I don't know if his problem is that his departure happened or whether it's how it happened or maybe a combination of all of those things. But it does feel a bit like the longer it goes on, the the more difficult it will be to ever make it right. Sort of like if you have a slight falling out with somebody and then you just leave it for ages and ages and then it just becomes impossible to mend fences. So I'm I'm glad yeah. to hear Mikel Arteta talk about it, but how open do you think Arsene will be to the idea of I even just returning for a game to be there to watch the team, which is not something he has been able to do um, since 2018? To go back for one game, <clears throat> I think, yes, Absolutely. I think he would be open for that. That would have to be a special occasion. Uh, but uh, I'm sure there would be plenty of special occasions to celebrate. It's not as if milestones are hard to find mm. uh, on the calendar year um, for him, for his Arsenal. Otherwise, I think no, no chance. Uh, first of all, he's now very much involved in his work 
uh, at, at FIFA, uh, for better or for worse, and as an advisor to IFAB as well. Mm. He, was, he was elected to a position, not on the, on the council, of course, but as an advisor recently. Uh, the first thing um, is also, he's getting on a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he wants to spend time with the people he wants to spend time with. And what's wrong with that? Also, I think he would be very ill at ease to become this kind of uh, either the nice uncle whom you revere, but which you, which you put in his, uh, you know, yeah. in the Diamond Club. Uh, I don't think that's him at all. He's still a man of action and so forth. You would think, well, I, I don't think it will necessarily bring back great memories. And especially the Emirates for him is not a place that means an awful lot. That's clear as well. Highbury is a different thing altogether. Mm. Highbury for him is synonymous with the years where things were looking up all the time. The Emirates is the symbol of something completely different. Could he come back with any responsibility within the team? I don't think that's possible because he would have to be in charge of everything or nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, it's sad. And also, he doesn't wield within the club any kind of influence. Again, I will take the example of Alex Ferguson, whom you see at Old Trafford, and he's still, you know, part of, of the infrastructure of the club in many ways. He still mm. wields a lot of influence, and people will still um, defer to him. Now, people would defer to us and Wenger as far as we are concerned, but certainly not in the boardroom. Mm. So, when you put all these things together... And he's genuine in, and he's not somebody who likes to be in the limelight, even if he's very good when he's in the limelight. He doesn't particularly enjoy it. He enjoys, he, just as much as he enjoyed addressing a room full of um, small, I was calling smallholders, mm. uh, shareholders at the Arsenal AGM, because in a way he could assert his power on them through his charm. It's a different thing as to being subjected to people wanting to have their picture taken with you every five seconds or your autograph or this and that or, you know, and it's not, an, it's not, these are not things that he's, you know, he's, he's looking for, yeah, that he's searching for or that he's ever enjoyed. And, and I was also struck by one thing, you know, when he says in the film, uh, as years go went on, the media demands became larger and larger and bigger and bigger. And mm. I found them difficult to deal with. Yeah. Well, Arsene was doing three times more media work at the beginning than he was doing at the end. At the end, he wasn't doing any. What had changed was, his, I, I, and I, I'm well placed to say that, he, he had become impossible to contact. He had become impossible to get on, for a one-to-one -one interview. What he was doing, though, is that he was spending a lot of time doing stuff for being sport or TF1, which he was paid for, which he assimilated to media work. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and so his perception changed, and I think his personal changed. He became harder, tougher than he was. Uh, and I don't think that would be necessarily a good idea. And I, I can perfectly see where, you know, Mikel Arteta is speaking from, and, and it's totally sincere, obviously. And I'm sure that if he came into the dressing room after a game, which we've won, of course, it would be wonderful. Mm. Uh, but other than that, I mean, apart from a special celebration, perhaps for uh, what we have coming, um, 
Well, to be honest, that, that was the uh, anniversary of his. I mean, everything is going to be a fifth or a tenth or something like that, mm. kind of jubilee-like. Uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, it wouldn't. I'm even... sure we could find one, but there, there, there will be there will be occasions yeah. which which it will be possible to invite him in. But even just uh, even just attending a game and being there again, I think would be. Yeah. Enough just to see what happens after. I think you're right. You know, you can't make him technical director. You can't make him a ceremonial whatever. None of those things are, are particularly beneficial. But I think even just some kind of informal... People are swans. <laughs> one of those. It, it would be nice, I think, for that for that barrier to be broken down. Um but it's it's a fascinating subject, this, and uh, I God, we could probably talk about it for ages and ages, but we can't yeah. this morning because because you have to go. So uh, I'm going to let you go, and thank you very much indeed for your time. Just before you go, you do have a gig coming up in London. Um, yeah. If you want to tell people when that is and how they can get tickets, that would be uh, that would be great. Yes, under my name of Louis Philippe, uh, uh, I'll be playing at the Lexington, uh, quite a lovely place near King's Cross, actually, in London, on the Sunday, the 28th of November. And uh, there are a few tickets. I'm playing in Paris um, this weekend, uh, and that's sold out. But we've got a concert coming at the Lexington then on 20th of November. And uh, if you just um, put Lexington, 28th November, Louis Philippe and the Night Mail, You'll find us. I think we're on C tickets and we got tickets and all these kind of all these agencies, uh, which take far more money out of the events than we do. <laughs> but there you go. We've got to use them. So sure. yes, please, please come round and uh, say hello. And uh, but uh, though there will be one football song performed on the night, and I can't tell you which one, it will have nothing to do with Arsenal and Arsene Wenger. Okay, perfect. We'll uh, we'll add some links into the show notes as well, so people can just click through in their app and find tickets if they want to go along to that. Philippe, as ever, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Andrew. As always, great to talk to Philippe. And, uh, you know, I think we probably could have spent another good while having that conversation and talking about all the various aspects of, of Arsene Wenger and what's going on and what isn't going on with him. But uh, maybe we'll save that for another day. Remember, you can follow Philippe on Twitter at Philippe O'Claire, at Philippe O'Claire. So... For now, let's leave it there. It is an interlull after all. Hopefully you've enjoyed the show. Thank you for being here all the way to the end. Thanks for listening, downloading, sharing, and all the rest. Do give us a review on iTunes or uh, the Apple Podcast app or whatever the fuck it's called now. Reviews are good. Uh, we like them, particularly if they're five stars. So if you could do that, that'd be great. If you can't, don't worry about it. James and I will be here on Monday. We will have an Arscast Extra for you. For now, though, have yourselves a great weekend and we will talk to you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Twice a day, we look at what's happening with the players. We look at the data, the data, the data, data, the data. We take the data and the data. 
and then we look at the narrative that's surrounding that particular player or issue, and then we can we can change that narrative with the data and the data uh, via our social media channels. Uh, of course, we can do it now on the blockchain. We've got players all over that blockchain, man. I mean, they're blocking up the blockchain, if you know what I mean. There's so many of them on there. Crypto, of course, is hugely important. And ultimately, we'll be able to change the stories because football is changing, you know? Now you're kind of tied to what's going on in the real world, but as soon as we start working in the metaverse, Liverpool can beat Manchester United 5-0 at Old Trafford in the real world, but in the metaverse, we can make that whatever we want. What is the metaverse? I, I, I don't really know beyond some desperate attempt by Facebook to save itself from irrelevancy because, frankly, the whole platform is a dumpster fire, but... This is what I'm working at here is the CEO of Narrative at www.manchesterunited.com forward slash Manchester United. Download our app for free. You can have your club with you wherever you go. We'll be with you wherever you go. Tracking you, taking your data and your data, serving you ads, monetizing your fan experience. Investing in Bitcoin and Tesla shares. You did what? Ah, fuck. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 